You're listening to 3CR Radio. And you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, community treasurer Lindsay Carroll joins us. And we chat with Deb Sabaris from the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare about Care Day and their work. And it is 3CR Subscriber Drive. Support independent community radio and subscribe at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. While Lindsay Carroll is a Melbourne queer media legend and community treasure who was on Bent TV for many years, and I spoke with her this week. Since we last had a chat, James, I'm I'm down a limb, I'm down half a leg, and uh, it was one of those things that just happened so quickly. I did have a very very sore foot for probably about two months beforehand and because we were in the time of COVID, trying to get to see a doctor was was just impossible. Trying to get to a hospital was impossible. Um, to all the listeners out there, I just I really beg you, and even in this time of COVID, if you are not well, really push the issue with your doctor because I found that it was just really easy to say, well, here's some Panadine Fort. And in the end, I don't know if I was really, I should have been sent to the Betty Ford Clinic to dry out or um and actually go to the hospital. So by the time I did get to hospital, I just watched my foot turn gangrene. The pain was absolutely excruciating. So by the time the doctor said, we're going to have to, you know, chop this off, you know, because, um, you know, nothing's working, I was actually pleading with them to do it right then and there, just grab an axe and and just get rid of it. But it it has, it's been an incredible journey. But, you know, if there's one message that I have to um, to your listeners today is, you know, even in the time of COVID, if you're not well, really push the issue because I, I think it's one of the reasons that now I'm a limb down. Before I went into hospital, I was screaming in pain at night. Like I literally had my head in the pillow screaming because nothing seemed to take away the pain. And then um, by the time I got to hospital, like even the surgeon said that it was just so quick that, you know, this sort of gangrene sort of set in or whatever the hell it was. Um, and and the funny thing is, though, that I don't remember an awful lot because uh, I don't know whether it was the pain that was blocking my memory or what's gone on because, as we know, the human body is an amazing machine. So I think that still at this stage there's something in me that's protecting me from going back to, to that time and basically just wanting to move forward. And you've got incredible community support. Were you surprised by how many people were were flocking around you when when news broke that this was happening to you? Oh, James, honestly, like even now I could just burst into tears. I was just amazed. I was incredibly thankful. Um, Throughout that time, honestly, I just felt blessed, you know, and, and I'm not a religious person or anything like that, but I felt so incredibly blessed that um, that people remembered me and, and that that's what I found astounding and and some of these people I, I haven't seen you know face to face in years you know it's been uh, predominantly Facebook communication and there they were sending me their love and support and it was incredible it, it was just absolutely incredible 
Ali Hogg and, and um, Jesse were, were just incredible. I, 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 again, I just couldn't believe it because I, I sort of, um, you know, throughout it all, you know, and I was taking these amazing painkillers and every time somebody would talk to me on the phone, because keeping this was in the time of, of COVID, all I'm hearing is blah, 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 Lindsay, blah, 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 Lindsay. And I think Jesse called me to tell me what was going on. Of course, it made no sense. And then, um, and then I saw on Facebook on my page, and I saw it, and I linked in to understand actually what was going on because I was living in this haze. But you know, it, that was just to stand because I know some of those people that actually donated. You know, they're they're on pensions, they haven't worked in ages. Again, time of COVID, a lot of them hadn't worked in weeks. Again, I, I was just I was astounded at, at the generosity and love. I've actually been accepted into an NDIS plan. It's been a bit of a nightmare, actually. Um, when I was at Sunshine Hospital um, in the rehab unit there, that was a bit of a hoot, actually. We all sort of made the most of that. Uh, I was given a series of exercises. And, you know, and some of them really, although there's no leg there, it still is a bit of a strain to, like, get that stump up and moving, basically. So the, the rehabilitation journey and the, um, the prosthetic journey has only just begun. So, so now um, I'm doing 10 minutes of exercise. I found an exercise program on um, YouTube and basically that's where wheelchair exercises. So I've sort of started that myself. Um, but basically what I need to do now is make sure that I have enough body strength to actually manage the prosthetic. You know, it's not like we can just go and, you know, pick a leg, you know, sort of pret a style and say, yeah, I like that one. Um, I've got um, a stocking that, you know, when drag queens wear about 37 hose, it's like that. And that's to actually mould the stump into the right shape to accept a prosthetic. So then I've got a plaster cap that goes over that. It's a bit of a production, actually. So that's all to get the stump into the right shape so that when um, I've already had one prosthetic fitting and because of the COVID lockdown, I've missed two appointments. But um, my next thing is um, the physiotherapy to make sure that I can manage a leg and I have enough upper body strength and a fitting with um, the cap that will actually connect to the new league. So it's all very exciting in a way. And it sounds like, you know, it's, um, it's really kind of, you know, tapped into your amazing sense of humour and that's something that's kind of, you know, helped you get through this and tell some incredible anecdotes. Oh, look, honestly, it, it, look, humour, de I decided, I think, years ago, James, that, you know, I think when the, you know, the first um, relationship busted up and I thought, you know, what the hell's happened here? And I actually, I realised back then that once you can laugh about something, you're sort of, so, you're just taking that huge gigantuan leap into getting better. And, um, and again, you know, when I was at Sunshine Hospital, um, I, I, I had a hoot there, like physio was amazing. And what I'd do in the morning, you know, you have these um, curtains around your bed and the nurses would, you know, remove the curtains. And the poor woman in the bed next to me, Denise, who was just divine, you know, I, I'd start her day with, you know, hooray for Hollywood as the, as the curtain was sort of revealing me in the morning. Um 
you know, I got the girls into online shopping because I, I sort of figured that the whole thing was we were all there together. We were all feeling a bit glum about our situation. But there's been um, three times I've actually forgot that I don't have a leg and I found myself on the ground. And um, I told the nurses, um, you know, that when that happened because, you know, you need to keep them informed, and, you know, and you learn so much. Like, you know, they ask, oh, could, they, could you have fallen because of your mental health or something like that? And, and you just think, no, I don't think that I was, you know, feeling a bit glum or anything that day. But the nurse just said, look, that happens to people who have had prosthetics for years. They'll just forget to put them on or, you know, so. But it was really interesting because the, the third time that I actually landed I forgot that I had a leg I was transporting onto the sofa and when I hit the floor I actually looked under the coffee table and thought god this hasn't been vacuumed under here for ages and got a different view of all the dust and stuff that was around um I've the interesting thing is in wheelchairs and and being disabled I think people out there with a disability will agree that people are really really kind you know, they really are kind. There's only been a couple of incidences where people have cut me off and, you know. But um, oh, we went to um, Werribee Plaza, a friend of mine and I, and we went to this restaurant for something to eat. Anyway, the guy saw the wheelchair and he's just waved us in and um, and there's been people waiting to be served and he's pushed them aside and he said, this woman's in a wheelchair, you know, she needs to be served now. So these people have just, oh, okay, you know, no one's objected or anything like that. We got the best service. Anyway, my pal went there without me and she said the service was really, really shitty because, you know, the wheelchair speaks. But um, I think falling down three times and just totally forgetting that um, I don't have a leg was, was probably the funniest. Um, and then actually... Um, I've made a couple of jokes about, you know, the leg just not growing back much to my chagrin. And, I, and again, you know, as we mentioned earlier, James, I just find that, you know, if I'm feeling a bit low, which you do, I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat this. It's, it's hard losing a leg. But I think, you know, getting on Facebook, for example, and just, you know, having a bit of a joke with it and people being respectful, um, understanding the line, but still having a joke back, it, it just helps so much. And it sounds like all those years on TV have really kind of, you know, helped nurture your coping mechanisms for this and being able to talk about it so candidly. Oh, yeah, I think you're right, actually, James, because, it, you know, I think everything we do in life sort of brings us to the point where we are now. It's sort of a little bit of a, philo a Buddhist philosophy, I suppose, but... I think that every, yeah, everything we do, you know, and I actually had some friends over on um, Boxing Day and one of my friends was saying, listen, you haven't seen the potential in this yet. And I'm thinking, you know, what's the potential for God's sake in losing a leg? You know, I, I couldn't see it. And he said, you know, do some stand-up or something. And then I thought, oh, God, no, I could never do that. But, um, you know, another friend said, you know, maybe there's something out there where you can utilise it and, um, and you know, get back into, you know, the, the media or something you know being an advocate for amputees or something I don't know but you know whatever whatever you know happens case sera sera 
Yeah, can you really see yourself returning to doing perhaps, you know, online comedy? I mean, you've got such a a huge community following. Can you see yourself doing a show online? Um, James, I don't know. I mean, at this stage, um, I'd like to have a a project um, and especially a media project because I don't know if anybody out there is into Chinese horoscopes, but I was born in the year of the monkey, fortunately or unfortunately, and we're the communicators. And I sort of, whenever I look back on... Um, any one of my careers, I've always ended up in some line of communication. Like I've worked in media and, um, you know, sales and marketing and God knows what else and, and um, magazines. And, and, um, and I, yeah, I've always sort of found myself in areas where it is about communicating. So I don't know. I think, um, I think this time around, though, I think I'd like someone to manage me or, or you know, I don't know something. But but because um, everything sort of changes and, and um, you know, I'm sort of old now, you know. So, you know, it's about relevance and things like that. So I guess if, if, um, if the right angle presented itself, yeah, why not? An older lesbian with one leg that's got heaps of experience in media who can do comedy. I mean, that's just you. Who else is doing it? No one. Oh, yeah, there might be one out there. You never know. You never know, James. But, yeah, it's sort of, you know, and it, and it's that thing too, like it is. And the funny thing was that when I was in rehab, I really, um, you know, sort of we live our lives and we don't sort of go outside our own bubbles very much. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we're not going to go to a hospital and walk around a rehab unit. And and being in rehab really opened to, opened my eyes to, you know, just some of the pain that that people are going through, and and you know, people that have um, amputees like me, you know, um, the woman next to me who'd had a stroke, the girl opposite me who was really quite young who was um, diagnosed with osteoporosis. And and it really was a bit of an eye opener, and I, and I found myself going for a walk, you know, in my wheelchair around the ward, and um, and get just getting to know people, just sort of dragging conversation out of them, and just sort of learning, you know, and and different aspects about life. So there's lots, I guess, you know, it, there's lots to pull on, but also showing people absolute respect with. Um, with a new show or something like that. You know, it, it would be a difficult one. It'd be a challenge, but it'd be there. And, and yeah, hopefully I could use my, um, you know, my media experience, my community media experience. Who knows, James? You know, manana, manana. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Lindsay Karoloff on 3CRs in your face. You mentioned Buddhism before and your Buddhist philosophy. Tell us about that. Well, I was always, ever since I was in high school, I always had showed an interest in Buddhism and and it was that thing about not really believing in God but believing in something. And what I loved about Buddhism is there is no God. Buddha was not a God. Buddha was a man like us. And it's basically about accepting responsibility for how we behave, what we do, you know, karma. Well, I sometimes wonder what sort of evil karma am I doing having my leg chopped off. I must have been an absolute, you know, asshole in a last in a past life. But one of the things that I found really beneficial is when I was in rehab, I'd, um, you know, I got myself a routine. And one of the things that I was doing is I decided to carry on my routine that I'd have at home. So every morning I was doing a 15-minute meditation and it was interesting because when the nurses would come round, I would hear in the background, oh, she's meditating. And everybody, everybody really respected that. 
And I believe that that really helped with, and it's still helping now with my attitude and um, and balance about this. I think, of um, you know, some days are really hard and it is about like stepping back and just sitting and not so much meditating but just trying to clear those thoughts from my mind and then getting on with it. Um, but I found Buddhism to just make so much sense. Like they're not being a God, accepting responsibility for your actions. You know, one, um, every action causes a reaction. You know, the four noble truths, the suffering, you know, you take away suffering, you know, you take away that desire and you take away jealousy and all those negative emotions and life really is easier. And, and you know, I've never been a, a jealous person or, you know, um, but I've always wished for something better and and it is that thing, you know, take away the suffering and take away that need for things that we don't need and life really does get a lot easier. But, uh, you know, I, I cannot stress the, the positive um, response that I had from the hospital when I was meditating and also for myself and I think it really does help with recovery and you know and there's even been uh, you know one or two meditations that I do just as a a bit of a joke you know where I imagine my leg growing back again you know just for just for healing and and I suppose um I suppose you could call that you know maybe comedic meditation. Do you think that being a mature woman has really helped you psychologically deal with this do you think you know 20 years ago it would have been a lot tougher psychologically? Um, good question, James. I, I really don't know because as we talked about life's experiences earlier, I think it does. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think, I think that the experiences that I've had throughout, throughout life, because we do, we have disappointments, you know, on, on every level. Um, I think sometimes it's a little little bit harder because you know I'll give the game away I'm 64 I'm, I'm an old thing but I just you know sometimes when I'm trying to get out of bed because you'd be amazed at how often we do need both legs like you know when we swing out of bed um I where I sleep in my bed it's always my left foot that hits the ground first well my left foot's not there anymore and I have to admit there's been some mornings where I've just thought oh my god this is the rest of my life you know if I'm here for another 20 years you know or 20 minutes this is the rest of my life trying to deal with this so I think um I don't know. I think I think that it is those life's experience where you think, okay, you know, really emotionally I've had a lot worse than this. Um, you know, as we discussed at one stage, you know, losing a partner, that was really tough. Um, but I think, I don't know. I, I think it is that having those experiences behind me and I think being and now having different ways to deal, like like we've talked about the meditation, like staying as positive as possible, um, having the amount of friends. I think that perhaps if this had have happened maybe 20, 30 years ago where there wasn't Facebook, I would imagine that the loneliness would have been something that would toss anybody over the edge, you know, because now we always have some form of communication Um and being able to see people like FaceTime and things like that. So I think maybe 30, 40 years ago, had I been younger and, and the, a different support, but not as open or as visual or as easy to connect with as what it is now, it probably would have been a lot more difficult. 
and I think your experience has made a lot of people put their experiences into perspective as well. Do you feel like people are reaching out to you and see you very much as a, as a community elder who's had this experience and who has been strengthened by it? Um, no, because I don't really, I don't have anything to do with the community per se now, James, you know what I mean? Like, you know, the community people that I, I've um, connected with on Facebook, um, yes, but I haven't been asked for any, um, I don't know, I haven't been asked for any advice or anything like that. I think some somewhere, you know, perhaps people do, they're not making it known, but I think somewhere they do. And I actually, um, you know, again, on Boxing Day, I was talking to someone and he actually used my example to a friend of his mother's saying, look, you've got to look after your diabetes because a friend of mine's had diabetes, you know, for years and years and and um, and has just lost a leg. And I said, oh, oh, no, I haven't really had diabetes, like, since I was a child or anything. And I said, it's only type 2 and it's manageable. And I said, I really don't think I lost my leg because of, you know, simply diabetes. And he said, oh, it doesn't matter. I think this woman, you know, got better anyway because she threw away all her sugar. So so there's one thing where you just say, yeah, well, my leg has actually done somebody some good. How helpful and amazing has pet therapy been for you? I know you have a beautiful dog that you absolutely love. Uh, honestly, James, she is amazing. As you would have heard her before, like anybody comes to the door, she just goes off. But, you know, it was heart-wrenching. She came in to see me once at, at um, Footscray, the first time that we, you know, sort of touched base when this thing began, and she was straining on the lead to get to me. Anyway, she jumped up and she licked my my mask just about off my face, and oh, it was just, it was beautiful. And I'm, you know, I'm welling up with tears, and I could see little tears in her eye. And then she stopped and she looked because she's sitting on the wheelchair, and she looked at me like, "All right, well, where are we going?" So I had to sort of wheel her around a little bit. So each time she came to visit, um, you know, it was just. It got better and better, but where she was staying, you know, my pal said that when she got home the first time, she was just so sad. It was terrible. But um, when I came home, of course, you know, there was my friend Fez here and Michelle bought Mushka back and I'm sitting in my dining room and Mushka went straight to Fez and didn't come anywhere near me. Of course, that just broke my heart. And then she, you know, it was all just a game. You know how animals play games with you. So, you know, she sort of jumped on my lap and did the licky licky thing. But she's just been absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. I, I can't, words can't describe just how, she, you know, she stepped up to the plate. But, you know, there's there's times during the day and um, she'll just look at me. She'll be sitting, you know, in front of me while I'm on the wheelchair and she'll just have this look on her face and I just tap my thighs and up she jumps because she wants to go for a ride around the house. So, so yeah, so... Um, Animals, you know, what can we say? But she's been absolutely brilliant, absolutely perfect. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Lindsay Karoloff on 3CRs in your face. Last time we chatted, of course, you really opened up about your time age in the Glass House Hotel, Melbourne's iconic lesbian pub and how it closed. That got a huge community reaction. Were you surprised by just how fascinated people were by it? Um. No, not really. The thing, the thing about the glass house is um, it started um, quite organically and I actually know the women who went there to drink um, and turned it into a dyke pub, or, you know, back in the 70s sometimes, James. 
and it was a, it was a fascination to the locals I, I began to learn. Like, you know, people would, it's a little, you know, I have a friend who lives on Hyatt Street and she only realised a couple of, I think maybe uh, 18 months ago, two years ago, that DT's was a gay pub. Right. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, we like to think that we're out there and all the rest of it, but people really don't give a bugger sometimes. But I wasn't, I wasn't really surprised because it had always been one of those mysterious places. And even to me, I never really drank there. I always, I was found a little bit rough, to be honest. And um, and then when I was asked to manage, I thought, oh yeah, this could be, you know, a bit of a hoot. But um, that was a learning curve in itself. But I, I found that people, you know, there were women who were visiting from interstate and they they weren't really there because it was a gay gay pub for women. They were there because of this really strange mystique. You know, they'd said, oh, we'd heard so much about it and, and um, you know, things that have gone on and blah, blah, blah. And, and I used to just tell them about the, the stories about the many ghosts that used to live there and how haunted the place was. But, no, I wasn't really surprised. And the other thing is, too, that I learned through a friend that apparently um, Indigenous people, that sacred Indigenous soil around that era, I'm not absolutely sure, but she did some research. And there's also a network of tunnels. I think they were built during the war. So it's a really, it's a fascinating area in itself. But, you know, and, and the thing was when guys would come down, because, you know, I had this open door policy, yeah, you know, guys can come in, but, you know, don't cause trouble. This is a safe place for women, yada, yada. And the guys that came down were really mystified and they wanted to see how women behaved and what women did and how women were actually different from gay men in their environment. So, so no, I'm not. It was, it was quite a mystical, mystical little place, really. Tell us about these ghosts. Did you ever see any of them? Oh, God, yes. Oh, my God, James. I actually have um, one on film and it's on VHS and I'm sure I still have the VHS um, tape somewhere. Um, But there was one and he used to hover around the cigarette machine and many times I'd see women buying cigarettes and they'd constantly be, be looking over their shoulder Anyway, one um, morning I was checking the tapes and you can actually see this figure in front of the cigarette machine just standing to the left of it and just sort of um, move around. Um, at night upstairs there was a, there were two bathrooms and there was one bathroom door that it was so hard to open. You just about had to get a sledgehammer to open this door and you'd come up the stairs and get to the landing and you'd just watch this door swing open and then slam shut again. Um, you know, I had two cats at that stage and to see the cats just sit there looking around because, you know, animals see these things all the time. But as you know, you know, the police were dying to close the pub down for all sorts of reasons and they were always checking the tapes and I'd watch them and I'd say to them, you go up first and they'd look at me and they'd be looking quite afraid actually and they'd be saying no you go up first I say no 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 you go up first and they'd be constantly turning around and looking at me like what the hell is following us up the stairs and so so yeah that was my little game that I played back with them but even walking down the hallway to get into the front room where I kept the tapes they'd constantly be looking around to you know obviously they were feeling something there too but it was always cold 
Um, I one night I heard the laughter of two two children upstairs, a little boy and a little girl, and I swear I saw a little girl's head sort of look in at me, very Victorian, you know, long hair, um, ruffled dress. Um, another night, going down into the cellar, you could put a, a light globe in and check it and then turn it on again, it would just explode. The, um, the cellar was just, I'd always make sure if I could that two people went into the cellar, not just one. And walking down the cellar stairs, you could constantly feel something behind you. Um, there was a little section where there was my office and there was a little section where there was a pool table and in the end I just gave up replacing the light bulbs there because, again, you'd put a light bulb in and it um, sometimes it would just go flicker, flicker, flicker and that was the end of it. Um, my office could be in my office in the morning and I could hear people running. And I think it was the kids that lived upstairs, you know, just running around upstairs. So, yeah, a very, very haunted building. It'd be interesting to talk to um, people now to see whether, you know, they're still living there or whether they came and lived with me. Who knows? That building's got such an incredible history and many purposes, no doubt, over the decades. Oh, God, yeah, but, you know, I'd, I'd be really, because that part of Collingwood is always really, really dark. I, I think you could put a million candle light down there and it would still be dark and shadowy. And I used to make sure that I'd go out with the girls, if ever they were catching cabs, and if I could, I'd go out and stand with them because it was just, it just had this really strange um, aura about it. And especially, you know, around three o'clock in the morning when things really started jumping, well, you could actually feel sometimes these entities leaving, you know, and then in the morning when things started to calm down a bit. And my um, bar manager at that stage too, she had a couple of experiences in the bar where she'd feel something pulling at her jeans or tap her on the shoulder. And I know how many times I know I heard, oh, Lindsay, cut it out. And I'd say, look, I'm down the back of the bar, you know, like I'd be in the other section. So, so yeah, it'd be interesting to find out, you know, it is such an incredible history when you look at, you know, the squizzy tailors and, and, you know, all those people that operated around that area. And when I I was a little kid I grew up around that area so my grandmother used to be an amazing resource for um, the Collingwood history and Abbotsford history so yeah it'd be it'd be good to check it out especially what my friend found out about the tunnels and apparently there's one that actually goes from the glass house right through to the peel or near the peel so yeah it'd be good to see you know reopen them or something have you know the the gay and lesbian ghost tours Indeed. What an amazing history you've got. An incredible connection to our community you have, particularly in the inner city. Lindsay Carroll, it's been an absolute delight to chat with you again. Thank you so much. And thank you, James. Chat soon, hoping. Lovely. Will do. Okay, bye now. 3CR. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming
becoming an increasingly important actor in the military industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. I'm on this train. I'm on this train. I'm on this downtown underground New York subway train. Blind man singing those songs of praise Grooving down the carriage to the beat of his cane Fill up his cup, he'll bless your name I'm on this train, I'm on this train I'm on this train, I'm on this, I'm on this downtown underground New York subway train On this train, Mischief on this train. I'm on this train. I'm on this downtown underground New York subway train. On this red lines closed at Canal and Church. White smoke spurting from a hole in the dirt. Peace train stroll on a goddamn word. I'm on this train. I'm on this train. I'm on this train. I'm on this downtown underground. Subway train. I'm on this train. I'm on this train. I'm on this train. I'm on this downtown underground New York subway train. And I'm on this train. 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 Milk there, train song. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, today is Care Day, joined on the line by Deb Zavaris. She's the CEO of the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare. Deb, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be with you. Lovely to chat with you, Deb. Tell us about Care Day 2021. Oh, my God. It's such an important day, and this year we're going all out. So Care Day obviously takes care, takes place today. It's Friday the 19th of February. It's the world, world's largest celebration of the rights of children and young people who 
are and have been in out-of-home care. And this year's theme is making care fair, equality through equity. And so we think that that's a perfect slogan, um, given that not only we want to make sure that kids who are in care, care get everything they need, but actually, having been through COVID, uh, we've just got to make sure that um, we have fairness and equity as we come out of this. Absolutely, and so relevant to the queer community as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, from our perspective, we've had lots of fantastic little videos up online with some of our um, our young people who've been in care um, inspiring us because, of course, they're all amazing. I mean, they are absolutely amazing. So it's a really good day, sun shining. We're out there talking about these amazing kids and also, um, really, let's think about it, these kids are our future and it's, I know that sounds really sort of a bit schmaltzy, but they're pretty brilliant and there are some pretty big things to tackle in our world right now. So um, we just need to make sure they've got all the opportunities that they, they need uh, to get where they want to be. So tell us about the work the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare does with the LGBTIQ community. Well, like, well, you would hope today that lots of, lots of organisations, you know, are really queer supportive, but our organisation is inclusive we're a peak body. We represent all organisations that work with children, young people um, and families around Victoria. And that many of the families that um, our agencies work with and many of our foster carers are from the LGBTQI community. And I do want to make a, make a bit of a shout out because we run Fostering Connections um, through the centre. Um, and basically it provides support and information to prospective foster carers um, as well as public educa- education, etc., get on our website, www.fosterconnections, and think about becoming a foster carer. Deb, are there any uh, campaigns that your organisation is working on at the moment? Yeah, look, we always, look, to be honest, we're always um, campaigning for foster carers. Um, we have a lot of our staff doing online um, online conversations on Facebook. Um, but at the moment, we're heading towards state budget. And when, you, when you've got state budget in mind, uh, the lobbying and campaigning is in earnest. Uh, so it's about making sure that um, we've got the funding and resources to provide services to families around, around Victoria. So um, watch this space in terms of the long shopping list that we've got for the Victorian government to make sure that kids in care and families in need don't get left behind after COVID. Are there any particular funding priorities? Can you tell us about that wish list? Give us a bit of a sneak peek. Give you a bit of a sneak peek. Well, there's just such a lot. But um, at the moment, we're hearing lots and lots of concerns raised by our agencies around families, particularly families who are more vulnerable um, and that they aren't able to, they don't, they literally don't actually can't even meet their needs. So you've got families on waiting lists, waiting for services. These are families that might have touched the child protection system, so they need help. Um, and some other agencies say that saying right now they've got waiting lists. Now, that's not a good situation when you've got a family in desperate need. So we'll be, we'll be asking the government to consider funding more workers on the ground to work with our vulnerable families. Um, we do have in Victoria about 500 children in residential care. So we'll again be asking government to make sure that all those children, um, every single one of them, get therapeutic care. Remember, some of those kids have had a really difficult time, so we want to make sure they get the treatment that they need. There's just a couple of things. There are so many others. Do you want me to go on? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really <laughs> important that people hear about you know the, the issues for such a vulnerable community. Absolutely. The other thing that we're pretty keen on is ensuring that 
um, families and children don't go deeper into our system. So we're big believers at the centre of early intervention. So that's providing services to children and families much earlier than than you know than we'd like. Um, and there's lots of evidence out there that these things called evidence-based models mean that we can work with um, children and their families. So to prevent those kids from coming into care, but also to prevent those kids from going on into our criminal justice system. Because unfortunately, when we don't work with families early enough and we don't actually um, target our services, sometimes those children end up in our justice system. So all of these initiatives are about diverting families and children from child protection, from our justice system, and making sure they get what they need uh, to thrive. When I hear, you know, about the work your organisation does and the communities that it works with, and when I think of the federal government's religious discrimination legislation, it just makes me so angry because it's, you know, going to make things tougher if it's passed for communities that are so vulnerable. Is your organisation concerned about the legislation? Look, we're always concerned about any legislation that um, stigmatises or differentiates or Um, opens up gaps in our community. We are one community and um, it's really disappointing when, um, you know, people in positions of power um, divide us. So, I mean, one of the things at the centre that I love uh, love is that our job is to make sure that people in our community who are a little different um, or um, really, you know, they're they're quite vulnerable, that we don't don't stigmatise those people and make their lives even harder than they currently are. And I think that... Um, you know, walking in somebody's shoes for a day, um, I think, is an important thing to be thinking about. Think about think about things from the perspective of the individual uh, that is struggling, and we very we try really hard to do that at the centre. Um, but we're very lucky in that um, we've got some fabulous young people and parents and workers uh, that actually um, give us a you know a real sense of what's going on out there, so that we can make sure that we. Um, think about the things we, we need to prioritise. I'd have to say um, it really is all, always important to get the right legislation um, in place and um, when we get legislation that discriminates, um, it, 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 it's worse for all of us, you know. Your organisation has a great mentoring program as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, are you talking about our Youth Ambassadors Mentoring yeah, Program? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful program. Yeah, so we... Um, we um, I mean... The team at the centre really believes strongly that uh, the way forward is always to have those who have a lived experience to be driving uh, policy and programming and have a really a big say in the sorts of services that are going to work for them. Um, so over the last few years, we've been looking at how we can recruit young people who've had a care experience um, and, and supporting them to be able to come into our organisation and assist us because it's important not to, it's important to set young people up for success um, and, and make sure that they've got the training and support that they need uh, to do what we need them to do. Um, and as today on Care Day, one of our... A fantastic young people was out there on Twitter with a fantastic video talking to young people who'd been in care and telling them how amazing they are and how amazing they can be. So, you know, at, at the heart of this is we can't, you know, people like me who haven't had a lived experience of being in care, I need to stand alongside people who have and make sure that they get to say what they need um, because often those voices aren't heard. Um, so the mentoring program is... Um, is really important and uh, we, we're very excited about being able to work in partnership with the people that we're there to serve. 
you did a shout out before about your your need for foster carers. Tell us about the training that's involved uh, in people providing out-of-home care. Look, there is... um what happens with foster care is if you're interested in foster care, so you make a general inquiry on our 1800 number or on our website, you can fill in a form there or ring, um, ring our operator. And it's at that point you have a conversation about is this something that um, you want to do? Um, where are, are you at in your life? Now, you can make an inquiry. You can fill a form in. That, those inquiries um, are then diverted to a foster care agency and then, you know, in about 40... Within 48 hours, one of those foster care agencies will get in touch with you and, again, talk you through the process. So there is training along the way, but the first thing to do is to sort of figure out whether it's something you really want to do. And, um, and um, you know, we've got some fantastic foster carers out there. So there's pre-training um, and then there's training post-becoming a foster carer. So a couple of lots of training. They're a bit intense because, as you can imagine, these are pretty special little people that foster carers are taking into their lives. Um, and we want to make sure that uh, foster carers are set up for success. So there's the pre-accreditation training and then the training that um, carers receive once they're accredited. Um, it's a bit of a process, but I must say it means that our, our carers come out the other end fully prepared for what they're about to do because it's, you know, it's a pretty special commitment. Um, and that process can take between three and six months, um, Sometimes it's a bit quicker. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer depending on the circumstances of the person who, um, who is interested. Um, and our Fostering Connections people are always there to um, give you some advice um, along the way. Fantastic. Well, the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare is a marvellous organisation. Deb Savaris, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Much appreciated. And happy thank care day. You. you too. Bye-bye Cheers. now. Bye-bye. Oh, typical of a man in the Western system. Like, hello, you know, all stories may, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet because Invasion Day was the start of the dispossession, murder, massacres and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So... Scott Morrison, if he really wants to lead this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through because the genocide continues today. Like Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground because he's really ignorant in my view. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Paranormale Tonbandstimmen. Was sind paranormale Tonbandstimmen? Es sind Stimmen unbekannter Herkunft. Es sind paranormale Ihren Klang. Ich verstehe die Sprachen. Ich verstehe die Sprachen nicht. Ich höre nur ihren Klang. So low. Honey, you're my one. 
Beispiel Nummer 22 From her classic 1982 electronic album, Big Science, Laurie Anderson there with example number 22. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. Don't forget, it is 3CR subscriber drive. We would love you to subscribe. Uh, please support radical independent community radio. Go 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Taking us out is New Water with Bizarre Love Triangle. I'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. Facebook.